Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. The second is Hood & Strong LLP. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. The third is Barrel. Barrel is a digital marketing agency that helps companies create revenue-generating websites, emails, and marketing campaigns. Clients include L'Oreal, Scott's miracle Grow, Berries, and Smarty Pants Vitamins. Barrel has extensive experience working with venture capital and private equity firms to help audit, optimize, and grow their portfolio brands. To learn more about Barrel, visit barrelny.com slash alex or email newbiz, N-E-W-B-I-Z at barrelny.com and mention Think Like an Owner podcast. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest Mitchell Blackman started Patriot Chimney a chimney service and installation business in Roanoke, Virginia, last year with his brother Matt and friend Billy. They recently made their first hire and have another one coming shortly, a testament to the growth they've been experiencing. If you liked the recent episode with Rich Jordan, you're going to like Mitchell's story too, as he's thinking about many of the same growing pains and plans. We talk about getting into college despite losing the opportunity to play college track and field due to an injury, starting a home cleaning business, how wrapping his trucks has brought in more customers, developing a new routing system, and how he's thinking about hiring new employees. This episode is an example of what I love about the small business investing and operating space, discovering new businesses and industries you never knew existed. I knew nothing about the chimney business and loved learning about it from Mitchell in this episode. I hope you find a few great takeaways from his story. Thanks, Mitchell, for joining. I'm looking forward to hearing about your chimney business more since you talked about it on Twitter a little bit. It's a industry I didn't really know existed. I mean, obviously people have chimneys. My parents have one, my grandma has one, but you don't realize that there's a whole industry around it and a governing board and scammers. So <laughs> excited to hear about how you got into the chimney business. Thanks for having me on. I love your podcast and I like listening to the story. So hopefully I can provide something too. So 
I was born in Florida and I moved to North Carolina when I was about six. And so for most of my life, it was just my mom and me and my three siblings. And I'm the youngest. And so I had all of them to learn from. She worked a lot, single mom, four kids. So she passed that on to me and my siblings. And she, she had to work. She had to work a lot. And I guess she didn't have a high school diploma. And she was doing all of that without any real education. I mentioned that because there wasn't a big focus on education as a kid. And it was really just work hard, have some common sense, and things might tend to work out. And so, for example, I love to cook, and, and my friends love to eat my food. And I actually I had a friend that told his wife that I was a better cook than her. And so a lot of people think it's strange when I tell them that I failed my cooking class in high school. I was really just in there to eat and just to get stronger for sports, for football and track. And I did get stronger. My objective was to get stronger and I did get stronger. And But I failed the class because I didn't do what I needed to do. And no one really cared too much except for my friend Cameron. And I spent a lot of time at my friend Cameron's house when I was in high school. He was homeschooled. So his parents put a huge focus on his education when I told him that I failed my foods cooking class. He's like, man, what the hell's wrong with you? Why did you fail foods? And I didn't have much of an answer except I was there to eat and I wanted to get stronger. And so Cameron's dad owned a couple of postage stores in Asheville, North Carolina, where I grew up. And seeing him own those businesses and seeing where Cameron's dad came from, it did sparking an interest in owning a business when I was a kid. Actually, I didn't know how to do it. I just knew that Bert really came from similar backgrounds. I mean, he didn't have a single mom, but he grew up on a farm in Florida and it was a watermelon farm. And he came and he's got four or five postage stores around Western North Carolina. And he started this business and was able to support a pretty big family. They got like six kids and it was a big inspiration for me. And if you would ask me when I was 15 or 16 what I wanted to do, I would have told you that I wanted to start a sports bar. I wanted to own a sports bar. And if you would ask me when I was 15, I would have said that I wanted to own a sports bar and just live above it. I don't really want to live above a sports bar, but I don't mind owning a sports bar someday. So maybe I'll circle back around to that. In high school, my whole plan was either to go to college to play sports. And I wasn't a very good athlete by any means, but I was getting a couple letters for track. I threw shot put and discus and I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's an option. And if that doesn't work out, then maybe I'll join the Marine Corps like my older brother. But then my very first scrimmage for football, I tore my ACL and my MCL and my medial meniscus. And that put me out for the rest of the football season. And I wasn't cleared to do track because I needed to have a custom fit leg brace and that didn't come in time. It took a long time for that to come. Even after I was cleared to be able to run around, I wasn't able to do my spin method or it's like a kick method for shot put. I wasn't able to do that because I didn't have the necessary hardware. And so there went my future, my whole plan for going to college for track and the Marine Corps recruiter said, oh, maybe next year, maybe 
give it a year and maybe you can join Marine Corps next year. And I said, well, okay. So that next summer, I actually tore my ACL again. So that one really totally nixed the idea of joining the Marine Corps at all. And while I was in high school, after I tore my ACL, it kind of derailed my whole plan because both of my options required me to have a functioning leg. (laughs) And I didn't know what to do. And one of my old teachers, he said, or he asked me, what are you going to do next year, Mitchell? And I said, I don't know. And he said, that was pretty stupid. And so he let me come back to the classroom and he, he helped me come up with a plan. And since I was basically poor growing up, he got me in contact with my guidance counselor and said, hey, get a free waiver for the SAT. Your GPA is not that bad. You might be able to get into college despite failing foods. Get some waivers for the college application. He guided me through that. Nobody else in my family had ever been to college. And so he guided me through that and helped me out with that. I got into a small school pretty close to where I grew up called Mars Hill University. Nobody's really ever heard of it. It's got about 1,200 students, but it's like a small private liberal arts college in the mountains of North Carolina. And since I kind of had my whole plan derailed in high school, that was a huge catalyst for my whole life because I'll never not have a plan. I'll always have a plan. I'll always have a contingency plan. I had my plan when I tore my ACL, but I didn't have a backup plan. So I was screwed when I did. And so going into college, I did everything I could to take my education serious because I thought if I graduated with a high GPA, then I'd be able to get a pretty good job. And then I thought if I stayed involved with a bunch of different organizations, then that'll help me get a job. So I was an RA. I got RA of the year. I was on the campus activities board, so I planned a ton of different events. I was on the traffic appeals board, so I got to say no to a lot of people's traffic ticket appeals. And then I had a couple marketing internships, and I stayed awake a lot, and I didn't sleep that much. And I just I worked my way through. I studied, and I graduated magna. I was pretty proud of it. And then I graduated from college, and it kind of... Turns out that you need an alumni network, and that would make things a lot easier. Like when you graduate to find a job, if you have an alumni network that you could reach out to. It also didn't help that I chose to move to Lexington, Kentucky, right after college. I had a girlfriend, and it worked out. She's going to be my wife in May. So she convinced me when I graduated from college to move to Lexington. I think it was part my idea too. I'm not going to put all back to her, (laughs) but I moved to Lexington and my only thing that I didn't want to do was to have a sales job. I just didn't want to go into sales. And there aren't too many jobs for new graduates in Lexington, Kentucky, because that's where the University of Kentucky's at. So there were a lot of graduates there trying to stay in Lexington. It's a great city. So I had a hard time finding a job and few months after I graduated, I finally moved to Kentucky and I sold armored car services for Dunbar. Dunbar Armored, they got bought by Brinks right before I moved back to North Carolina. I was dealing a lot with banks, a lot of the regional banks. I didn't deal with large national banks, but I had free reign all over the state of Kentucky. We had the largest footprint in the entire country for our region. So we covered 
a little bit of Ohio, a little bit of Indiana, all of Kentucky, and a little bit of Virginia and Tennessee, all out of our small Lexington office. And so I was driving around a lot and I was selling a lot and I was talking to a lot of bank executives all over Kentucky. And I made a decent amount of money and I really liked that I had the autonomy. I was in Lexington. I was the only salesperson in the whole branch. And my boss was actually based out of Cleveland, Ohio. And he would come down maybe once a quarter just to see how I'm doing. Sometimes he'd just meet me in, in Louisville and go on about his way. <laughs> it just, it was nice. I really appreciated the autonomy and he trusted me. It was cool. But the problem I had with it was even though I was selling and growing that Lexington branch, I was the first salesperson that they had in that branch. I didn't feel like I was doing much. I didn't feel like what I was doing had much of an impact. So I was looking for a way out. I wanted to get out of sales. I didn't want to be in sales to begin with. And I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. I thought maybe I'll go and go to the Patterson School of Diplomacy at the University of Kentucky and then be in politics or something. And then I thought that sounded kind of boring and I didn't want to do that. And I thought about going to the University of Kentucky again to get an MBA, but I decided I didn't want to do that either. Not the University of Kentucky. I didn't think it was worth it. And I just didn't want to do it. But I thought, well, maybe sales is all that I could do. One day, my friend Cameron, the one I mentioned before, he said, hey, let's start a business together. And he was working for the NSA in Maryland. And I guess the NSA, I guess it can be boring too. And he decided he didn't want to be there and said he wanted to start a business. And we went to college together. And he was one of my best friends growing up, like I mentioned before. And then he kept mentioning stuff like drop shipping and affiliate marketing. And I thought it just didn't sound right. I didn't want to do it. And I guess he got bored with it, joined the army. And, <laughs> and I still thought, well, yeah, starting a business might be fun. And so I started a housekeeping company in 2017. So I graduated college in May of 2016. I started Town Mountain Maids my housekeeping company in 2017. And that gave me the first little taste of entrepreneurship. And I followed Rohan Gilks on Reddit. He had a local case study kind of thing and on his entrepreneurship ride along subreddit. And I followed it almost to the T. And I figured out as best I could, if I didn't know how to do it, I just Googled it. And I tried my best to get it going. I hired my mom and my Aunt Missy to work for me. And for three months, I didn't get any business. I was spending money trying to get leads from Thumbtack. And I didn't use Porch at the time, but I was using Thumbtack. And I was doing that while I was working for that armored car company. And I was in Kentucky, and this company is based out of Asheville, North Carolina. And so I had them working for me. Three months goes by, nothing. I don't have anything. I'm doing my best. I'm posting on Facebook and trying to do what I can remotely. And then all of a sudden, I had a guy that just, I guess, took a chance on us off of Thumbtack. And then we got him. And then that same week, like the next day, I got another one. And then eventually, we had a pretty decent stream of business coming in. Not enough for me to quit my job or anything, but enough to give my mom and my Aunt Missy a little bit extra. Full transparency, I don't really care for the housekeeping industry at all. Not anymore. I've gotten so burnt out of it. I still have it. I get some money from Town Mountain Maids here and there, but the big thing with it is I learned a lot from it and it helps my mom and it helps my aunt and it gives them money. And I got a couple other cleaners and it helps them too. And that's the ultimate goal. That's why I haven't just 
cut the whole thing. Well, my brother, the one I mentioned that was in the Marine Corps, he reached out to me a few months after I started seeing a little bit of success with Time Mountain Maids. And he said, hey, let's start a landscaping company. And we played around with the idea. We knew that it'd be cool to start a business. He wanted to start a business. And I think I mentioned in the call with you before, I don't know exactly why he wants to start a business. It seems partly like maybe he just got sick of being told what to do because all that time when he was in the Marine Corps, maybe he just wants to own his own business. I don't know. I never really asked him about it. But he said, let's start a landscaping company. And that fell through. And he decided he was going to take a part-time job while he was going back to school. I think he was wanting to be a game warden. And so he was going to a local community college in Roanoke. And he took a part-time job out of Craigslist. Chimney Company was asking for a part-time employee. And he took the job. And one thing led to another. And he went, used his GI Bill to go up to the National Training School for Chimneys in Indiana. He got certified, and he's actually a certified chimney sweep. He's got a bunch of certifications that he earned because he really loves the chimney industry. And after we kind of nixed the idea of a landscaping company, he then called me again, and we talked about starting a chimney company because his checks were starting to bounce and the company that he's working for. We owe a lot to that company, and they're one of our competitors now. We owe a lot to that company because of that's kind of the start of how Patriot Chimney started, is them offering Matt that part-time job. But they were doing some shady stuff, and Matt wanted out, and when his checks weren't clearing all the time, he just wanted to get out, and it was a good time for us to start. So he had another friend that he served in the Marine Corps with that was also working for that company, Billy. And so me, Matt, and Billy came together, pulled some money together, and with about 10000 bucks from, it was less than 10000 bucks, but we got some money from our savings and from credit cards and a few thousand bucks from some family and stuff and pulled together, bought a van, made a list of all the equipment that we wanted to get, and we bought a magnet. You can see, we bought that magnet and put it on the side of our van, and that's how Patriot Chimney started. and. I reached back into my time with Town Mountain Maids when I was starting that and remembered how to file the LLC. I built the website and wrote all the stuff for it. And that first month was pretty tough. We bought a bunch of door hangers and flyers and we set up a Google Voice phone number and we went and I say we, but it was me kind of planning it. And then Matt and Billy went into action because I was in Raleigh, North Carolina at that time. I had moved from Lexington to Raleigh. And we were starting that business in Roanoke. So I was doing more of like the back office sort of planning and building. And they were on the front lines actually doing the work. And they were canvassing and knocking on doors and putting up door hangers. And in our first month, so we officially started and launched the website and said we had a company in July. Nothing happened in July. August came along and it really took off and it really started working out for us. And we made 13000 a little more than 13000 bucks in that first month. And that was in August. By November, we bought a new van. So we had a van to begin with. We bought another one. So then we could theoretically almost double our jobs and how much we were able to take in. They were horrible vans. One was one that we bought used on Craigslist. And the other one actually we bought from it was an old Spectrum cable van, and we bought it from a used car dealership. And 
they were so rough, but they were clean on the outside and they looked fine on the outside. And we slapped these big magnets on the side of them and we took off. And by the end of the year, we had to hire a receptionist to answer all the calls and schedule everything. And we did about 75000 in those four months, those first real four months of actual getting down to the dirty work. And February 2020, I was able to quit my job. I wasn't in, not sales, like a proper sales job anymore. I'm not doing those cold calling anymore. And I'm working full-time building out Patriot Chimney, and I'm loving it, loving it. So how many trucks do you have today then? We still have two, but we have those other two that we had to begin with. So we have two, we're about to buy a new one. Nice. And you also talked about the magnet. You said you wrapped your trucks recently. What made you decide to wrap them and how's that gone? It was always kind of an idea to get it wrapped straight from the beginning. We thought, we're going to get a wrap. And I thought, I've never been impressed by a company's wrapping on their truck. I've never owned a home either, so I guess it didn't really matter. I've never been influenced that way. And I thought, oh, it's just going to be a waste of money as long as they know that it's us and it's not just some creepy white fan that's pulling down their driveway. We'll be fine. And then we just started making a little bit more money and doing more repairs. And we had more money that we thought now would be a decent time. And so we partnered with this company called Sun Solutions in Roanoke, and they tinted our windows and wrapped our trucks. And it's a very basic design. It just has Patriot Chimney, and it has a couple of our certifications, and it says that we're licensed in the state of Virginia, and we started a nonprofit. I can tell you about that later, but we have that logo slapped on the side of it too. Very basic, very minimal. But I had no idea how impactful that was going to be. I had ridden along with them and done some jobs with them before with just the magnet on the side and nothing really happened. But the last couple times, literally the last couple times that I'd been up there in Roanoke doing jobs, there was one time where we're driving, I was riding with my brother and he was just showing me this chimney that we just built because I hadn't seen it in person and built the whole thing from the ground up. And so he's showing me that. And so we're driving through this neighborhood and this guy is just hanging out by his fence, talking to his neighbor. He waved us down and asked us about our work. And we booked an appointment with him. And a couple times we'd be at the hardware store at Lowe's and people would see our vans and we'd be getting out of the van or going back into the van and people would stop us and we'd schedule an appointment right there. Or we were on top of a roof and this lady was, this lady or man, I don't remember. They were going for a walk and they had a stroller with their kid and waved us off the roof. We booked an appointment there just because they saw that we had a van and <laughs> they knew that we were doing chimney work. And it's crazy. I had no idea, but it happens. People like that wrapping, I guess, maybe at least in Southwestern Virginia. Pretty cool. So you talked about building the chimney from the ground up. So how much of your work is new construction, building new chimneys versus the service and cleaning type work? Building new chimneys, say like laying brick by brick or building the siding up the chimney, that doesn't happen very often. What does happen is sometimes a customer wants to convert an old chimney that they had and will drop a liner down for that. But that's just a similar process if we want to, say, repair their old liner. So that one's the same process. So I'd say we've probably built from the ground up maybe two, three chimneys now. 
So like I said, it doesn't happen very often, but actual repairs happens a lot. I don't have a percentage for you, but we do a lot of repairs. Every job starts with an inspection. So we do a ton of inspections and a ton of sweeps. I wish I had a percentage for you, but I don't. I also mentioned before that I know nothing about the chimney industry. So when you say lining of the chimney, do you mean that there's the brick that is the main structural element of the chimney and then there's some metal or material lining in the middle of it and like the tube portion where the smoke comes out and that's the part that gets replaced and fixed? Yeah, so if you build a chimney, and I'd say it's like your standard brick chimney. When the construction workers, when they build it, they're going to put, usually they'll put a terracotta flue inside. So that flue is what's exhausting the gas from when you're burning wood or gas, whatever. That flue exhausts the gas up your chimney in and out into the atmosphere. And when one of those terracotta flue tiles break, so they're basically stacked on top of each other. Because if my hands are terracotta flue tiles, and if one of those breaks, so there's something called creosote when you burn wood, sometimes to a lesser extent when you're burning gas. But when you're burning wood, you have smoke that'll go up, obviously. And then that smoke and that fire is building, it's like exerting moisture out of the wood. And so that moisture comes up and it mixes with the smoke. And creosote is just a natural byproduct of burning wood. And so that sticks to the inside of your chimney. It's actually acidic as well. So if water comes down and it mixes with that, it'll eat away at your terracotta flue liner. It's also flammable. So if you have, once again, a wood burning stove and you have an ember that goes up and you have a little bit of creosote that's stuck to the inside of your chimney and that catches on fire, that could damage the flue tiles. And so as you have damaged flue tiles, then we could replace those. It's expensive because, like I mentioned, they're individual tiles kind of stacked up. And so we have to dig into a chimney and break away and actually kind of damage your chimney. We replace it, but we have to damage it to get into it and pull the broken flue tile out, put a new one in, and then replace your chimney. So that's expensive and kind of unnecessary. So instead of doing that, what we could do is take a stainless steel liner and it's just a long liner it's the same length as your whole chimney and and run it down and connect it they last forever you got to get them swept but they have a lifetime warranty and they last forever so that's what i'm talking about when we drop a liner down it's repairing the inside and putting a new liner in and then when you say sweeping do you mean cleaning out the liner or the smokestack itself or is that more of where the fire is burning and the fire is being added, is that this part where you're sweeping and cleaning? It's both, because what we'll do, you can do it from the top or you can do it from the bottom, but either way, you take a brush, there are these really long fiberglass brushes with wire brushes at the end. And then so you kind of have to, you have to scrub the creosote off the side, and that's what you're cleaning off. And that'll come down. And inside where you're burning the fire, that's your firebox. And inside that, you have to clean it just the same. and sweep that. And if you have a wood-burning stove or a wood-burning fireplace underneath, there's an ash pit. So it'll collect the ash and you have to sweep that out too. Because like I said, it's flammable. And if you're not careful, that'll catch on fire. And that's how a lot of house fires start is from creosote just kind of hanging out and not getting it swept. How often do you need to sweep a, a chimney? If you use your chimney 
like normally. If you use your chimney like once a year, you could probably hold off. You need to get it inspected every year, but you don't need to get it swept every year. If you use your chimney a lot, then a good rule of thumb is once a year to have it swept. We do have this restaurant client that gets it swept once a quarter because they're burning wood all the time. And so what we're taught at the training school, I didn't go to the training school, but what we're taught from the National Fire Protection Agency and they're the ones that set the standards, is that one-eighth of an inch of creosote buildup dictates the need for a sweep. But once a year is usually standard. So with your service customers you have, are you setting up recurring inspections and sweeps for them as part of like a long-term recurring customer relationship? Most of the time what we'll do, since it's one year in between, it's we can't really set up like a recurring discount. I don't think that that would really work. I mentioned that because with my housekeeping company, that's what we do to keep the recurring clients coming back. We offer like a recurring discount. And with these clients, they just come back and we remind them that they're supposed to have an inspection and a sweep every year. And before we close out jobs, we try to ask them, would you like to get onto the calendar for next year? We can go ahead and put you on because if you wait until burn season, which is like now when people are starting to use their fireplace, if you wait, you're going to have to wait. Like right now, it's November. We're booked into mid-February with burn season clients. And we book way out. And it's not just us. It's every chimney company across the entire United States unless they just started out and they're filling up their client base. So we get that and we say, we'll lock you into the same year pricing. We might raise our prices next year. and if we go ahead and put you down, we can lock you in. It works. Sometimes people are like, no, I don't know my schedule next year. And we say, okay, that's fine. Just give us a call when you're ready, but don't wait until burn season because you'll have to wait. In order to grow and increase your capacity, it sounds like it's more of a, on your end as a business, it's less of, I don't have enough customers to grow. It's more of, I need more employees and inspectors and chimney folks in my business to help grow. So How are you approaching that end of your growth? Slowly. So right now, I mentioned that we have a wait period of like 90 days, and it's going into mid-February. And we're trying to hire people, but hiring poorly really scares me. I don't want to do that because I don't want to hire the wrong person, and then maybe they mess up our reputation that we've built in the Roanoke area. But I also don't want to hire somebody that's, I guess, you're kind of prone to get Injured sometimes, maybe, I don't know, if you're on top of a roof. So we want to hire careful people. And we want to be really careful with who we hire. How are you going about hiring new employees in your business? One thing that we also did, we've had a hard time with hiring people. Not because we can't do it or we don't know how, but what was hard in the past was we didn't really know exactly how to do it. Because the chimney industry, it does take a lot of experience, say, to go to an inspection and diagnose a chimney. And it takes a lot of experience to be able to repair a chimney to a certain extent. And so what we were trying to figure out and we were really struggling with was how can we hire somebody and then train them to be able to do everything? And that was one of the biggest problems that I think we had even, I guess, up to a couple months ago. We struggled with that. We were getting booked out and it sounds nice that we're booked to February, but I hate it because 
we can bring those people a lot sooner. And how many people are calling us and we're like, hey, we can't get you in until February. And then they're calling one of our competitors. And so we're losing, I don't know how much, but basically all this is, is speculation, but we're losing business, I think, because we can't get people in a lot sooner. And I looked around and tried to find people that were in a similar situation to us. And on the Sweaty Startup blog, he has a hiring guide. And that hiring guide was, it wasn't geared towards chimney industry. And I kind of had to read it with the mind that I'm going to have to change a few things, of course. And I got to thinking, well, I'm not a chimney expert, but I know a little bit about chimneys. I've done some ride-alongs and I can put on a cap. All that is is climbing on top and putting a cap on. I can put crown coat on. That's You take this bucket of mortar. It's a little bit more than just mortar, but you take that, you paint it on top of the crown of the chimney, and I can fix some of the bricks. I got to thinking about what are things that I can do personally. And so I made a list. I went through all of our stuff that we did, and I made a list of everything that we were doing. And it turns out, out of all those things that I think that I could do, that made up 68% of the work that we were doing post-inspection. So all those repairs that we were doing, 68% are jobs that I could do. So my thought was, well, if I could do it, then we can hire somebody. And if they spend two weeks working with us, 80 hours doing that, they're going to be perfectly fine to be able to be in their own truck and go and do the work for themselves. And I got that idea from that sweaty startup hiring series. And I passed that on to my brother and I passed that on to Billy. And we actually just hired somebody. He started yesterday and we're still hiring some people. I've been talking to the local VA to try to get some veterans that can get hired. I'm trying to hire some college students that might want to get dirty and don't mind climbing on top of the roof and we can get them and train them. And that's the idea is try to get something that's simple where we can have people on the board with us and trained in two weeks. And the hardest part that I had before is like I mentioned, I'm not a chimney expert. So I was relying on Matt and Billy to build out the SOPs for all the other stuff. Well, they didn't have the time to do it. That might be my fault because in June, I decided I was going to reroute some things. And the goal was to make a lot more money and I did it. But then they were booked like crazy. We went from literally in, I wrote it down because I knew I'd forget. So in May, we made $21,841. In June, we made $48,700. So I took a long time to think about this and a long time to build out a new routing schedule. And the goal worked. We got a ton of new customers and we were able to fit people in a lot faster. And we made a lot more money and the profit stayed about the same. I didn't work out the percentages when I wrote this down, but it stayed about the same. And actually it went up in June. So we became a little bit more profitable too. But What it did was it left hardly any room for error. So if it rained, it was really hard to schedule people back in. Plus, we were getting back into the burn season and our call volume shot up. It went from 87 new customers in May to 147 new. So, and then in September, we did 213 new schedules. So it picked up and we got booked like crazy and there wasn't any room for mistakes. Matt and Billy were working like crazy. They were working really late and felt really bad because 
there has to be some work-life balance. And we were pushed up against the wall because they need to have work-life balance. And the only way to do that is to hire new people. But we didn't have enough time to build out the SOPs that I thought we needed to be able to hire people. So eventually I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do my best. And Matt helped me build the SOPs for those things that I mentioned before, what I call light repairs. And we hired somebody and we're going to hire somebody pretty soon. Hopefully I got to get some new applicants and get back out trying to hire some more people and buy a new van and I'll reroute again. I'll restructure it again, reroute. And then hopefully we have the same effect and we can do similar to what we did back in May and June. So with your routing, is this something that was previously like written down or on an Excel sheet and now is a new software or what's this routing system you improved on? For the first few months when we started our company, we were doing it with a notebook with Matt and Billy would take the calls and write things down. And that was really it. About October, we started realizing things were falling through the cracks. So we went with Jobber and we implemented Jobber. And at that point, we would just kind of write down where we were going to be on the calendar. We'd say, yeah, we're in Roanoke on Monday. We're in Lynchburg on Tuesday, or maybe it's kind of just sporadic. And we were all over the place and they were going back and forth. And so I thought what would be a good idea is to take a little bit more of a quantitative approach to it. And so I ran a report in Jobber and pulled all of the zip codes that we go to. And I figured out how many times we were in each zip code in Google Sheets. And I broke that down and then figured out how many times we were in each zip code per month on average. And then I put that information to work. So I'd say, okay, well, on average, for example, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I said, for example, like we're in Roanoke. We have X amount of jobs in Roanoke. We need to be there three times a week. In Blacksburg, we could be there maybe once or twice a month. And in Lynchburg, maybe we need to be there two or three times a month. So then I found, I just wrote it down on a, kind of arbitrarily just put it on a calendar. And then I ran another report for the customers that we had moving forward. And I called them and rescheduled them and routed it in Jobber and put them into the calendar and just redid everything as far as that goes. And it's kind of how we're doing it now. And just the number of jobs that we have scheduled for like Roanoke, that stays the same. What we want to do is instead of giving our customers a set time, let them pick like, okay, well, we say we could be there either between eight and noon. You either get a morning or afternoon. I don't know how that would work. We haven't really tried it or I haven't asked any of the customers how they would feel about that. But I think that would allow us to take the customers. Like if you called in, I'd say, well, would you prefer morning or afternoon? You say afternoon. I say, okay, well, I'll put you down for that. And the week before, we'll give you a call and give you an actual time. Or two weeks before, we'll give you an actual time. And we can run it through a route optimization software in Jobber. And we tell them, okay, well, we'll be there. Alex, I'll be there at 2.30 on that day that we picked. And I think that would save us a lot of time too. That's how we route. Nice. You've had a lot of improvements then with the wrapping, better hiring, route scheduling. What do you think going into 2021, what do you think is next for your company and the next system and step function of improvement? Definitely. We need to hire more people. We need more vans. One thing that I think we could really improve on is 
figuring out how to stock our inventory in our shop. We have a small shop. It's like a three-car garage, basically, and it's full of a bunch of stuff. So right now, how we do it is when a customer needs a cap or something, or say they need a new liner, we have to order it from our manufacturer, and we have to get it, and they ship it to us. So we tell the customer, okay, well, it's going to take two weeks for us to get it. you got to pay your deposit, and we'll be able to order it. That's how we do it. Right now, what I want us to do is when we have more people, the customer has uh, one of our common cap sizes. We already have those in stock. And when we notice that they have a cap that needs to be installed, we say, we can be there next week and we can come. And then I have the people, like I mentioned, in the light repairs, like the new guy that we just hired or the college students that we may hire. And we have them, they go out and install the cap for us the next week and we can build it out really fast. I really want to speed it up. A lot of companies in the chimney industry, they're booked out quite a bit. The top guys from conversations that my brother has had with, there are a few decent-sized chimney companies where they're running like 30 trucks. It's not very common, but they exist. And so my brother, he'll talk with them sometimes and ask how they do things and how long they're making their customers wait. Well, the biggest companies, they're only making their customers wait like two weeks, and they're able to get to their customers. And that's one of our Next biggest goal that we want to achieve, we're not 100% sure how to do it, but just like everything else, we'll figure it out and we'll have it done. Love it. I'm going to get into some closing questions here because we're bumping up on time. What class would you teach in college if it could be about any subject you wanted? I would teach a class on rhetoric and I'm not an expert on it by any means, but I think a big part of rhetoric is how you say something and a big part of why I like that so much is that goes a long way. Like if you're having an argument with your wife or something and you say something wrong, it's how you say it. Or if you're trying to sell something to one of your customers, it's how you say it. And I think that would be a very beneficial class. I read a book called Thank You for Arguing by Jay Heinrichs, this book here. So that one, he just talked about, you have to talk your audience's language. And it, it makes sense. It's kind of a duh moment. But when you do that, when you start marketing towards your customer, you ask them questions and then you market in their language, then that helps. And so if I could teach any class in college, it would probably be something about rhetoric. Nice. I like it. We'll link to that book in the show notes. What's a belief you used to hold strongly that you've changed your mind on? I had a hard time thinking about this one, but I figured it out just before our conversation. So I used to think that I should and could just do everything by myself. That's not feasible at all. I learned how to build a website because when I was building Patriot Chimney and Town Mountain Maids, I was like, I, I could do it. And so I just did it, but I could have saved so much time, maybe not money, because if I'm doing it myself, it doesn't cost that much to do just a lot of time. And if I had all that time, I could have, I could have done anything else instead of building a website. And while it's kind of fun to learn new things, I don't need to... One of our biggest growth strategies, I think, in the beginning was we reached out to a lot of real estate agents in the area. And by a lot, I mean, I hired someone to go through and scrape the 
Realtor Association website in Roanoke and pull that. And so I reached out to every single one of those people, all the realtors that were in Roanoke and said, hey, we're a new chimney company and we want to partner with you. And just hiring that guy saved me so much time. I didn't have to pull all that data. And every once in a while, if I need help, say building a new logo or I want help making an infographic or something, I hire a freelancer because I don't want to learn how to work Photoshop or Illustrator or anything like that. I know I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I can strongly sympathize. I just redid my website and podcast cover art with my cousin David's help, just starting his own design studio. And I totally agree. Like, There's things like that that someone out there is way better at and enjoys doing that I don't really, I shouldn't be spending my time doing something I'm not better at than someone I can easily get a hold of. So I can completely sympathize with that. What's the best business you've ever seen? All right. So I know this is going to sound weird. McDonald's. I think that's my favorite company. They get a bad rap, but they're so fish. Well, sometimes where I lived last time we had a McDonald's across and I think it was the second worst McDonald's in the entire United States. The first worst McDonald's was this one that I went to on Canal Street in New Orleans. It's horrible. But all the other ones, fantastic. And I really appreciate how consistent they are. I went to Alaska this past summer and I was in Anchorage and we're driving back to our Airbnb up in Alaska. And so we stopped at a McDonald's. And the only thing that was different is they had a burger called the Denali burger. I didn't get it, but I got my usual and Coke tasted the same and the double quarter pounder tasted exactly the same. And consistency. I'm a creature of habit and I can appreciate the consistency. I really like McDonald's because of that. Is there something about McDonald's that you're hoping to apply to Patriot Chimney? Like I said, the consistency. So I, remember, I mentioned that the reason we were so slow to hire is because I really wanted us to have SOPs. That makes sense, but I wanted them clear and concise and written down. And we have that with every little aspect. Some things are kind of hard. Some jobs, you can't really predict everything that can happen. But for the jobs that are predictable, we should have a step-by-step checklist because I want a customer that if they hire us this year for an inspection and a sweep, I want somebody else maybe to go next year and I want them to get the exact same experience because if they're calling us next year, we did something right this year. And so I want to duplicate that and that would probably be the best thing that I would implement for us. I like it. Thank you so much, Mitchell, for sharing your time with us. This has been awesome. Really enjoy getting to hear about the chimney business and how you're building it and improving on it. This has been really fun. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Oh.